Alrighty, so today we are here. Uh, I'm, Jeremiah is not with me today. It's just me, and I have a, a very dear friend to me, uh, someone named Mr. Woodall. Hey, hello, everybody. So uh, he's a just super great guy I've gotten to know over the years. Uh, his son is actually my boss, and he's just been a, a very caring friend to the whole community. Just really loves people and cares about people and is a great Christian guy, but he has a lot of stories and wisdom. And today we're just going to have a conversation and he's going to tell his stories and we're going to go from there. Does that sound good? That sounds good. I will say I, I am a caring guy. In the same token, I know that no matter what people say, I know who I am. <laughs> and there was only one good person. Oh, That is God. Only God is good. And what God created is good. Amen. Amen to that. Well, let's just start at the beginning of your life here. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Miami, and uh, actually I was where Miami-Dade Junior College campus is in Miami. Uh, that used to be Opelika Airfield, and I was born in a military hospital right there in Opelika, Florida. Okay, I actually didn't realize your dad was in the military. My dad was in the Army, and if I'm not mistaken, he met my mom, was a nurse, volunteer at a medical facility, military facility, and that's where my mom and dad met in <laughs> South Carolina is where they met, but they moved south, and I was born and raised in Miami. Hey, look at that. Yep. Floridian like me. Yep. <laughs> so what, what year was that? That was in 1948. Okay. 5848. So uh, that was a little while ago. It was a little while ago, for sure. You know, I, I look around and I see dates and that sort of thing, and I don't realize sometimes how old I am until I hear dates and I hear 1948. That's old. <laughs> that is old. I... But I'm learning to live with it. Yeah, well, that's good. You kind of have to. You don't have a choice, right? There you go. All right, so you grew up in Miami? I grew up in Miami, and I have an older brother, so I was number two in line in the food chain, and then I have two sisters that came along after me, and I can honestly say that I was a mama's boy growing up, and uh, my brother was a little bit, he was a year older than me, but he was always bigger than me, and I've always been on the small side in statue, <laughs> which means that uh, as I started school, I was the smallest one in the class. And then parent-wise and teacher-wise kind of catered to me because I was the little person and I was very sensitive. And, and I got kind of used to being treated that way. And actually, my mom had to come get me several times at school and take me home. Because I just, I wanted my mommy. and <laughs> That wasn't in high school, was it? No, no, no. no. This was in elementary school. And uh, it's kind of funny now because back then, this was serious stuff. I wanted my mommy. And uh, yet, though, now that I'm old, I can talk about it. It doesn't bother me a bit. I'd like my mommy today. Yeah, absolutely. It, you know, and it doesn't bother me. But back then, uh, I was close to my mom and my dad. And I enjoyed the home life. So Yeah, well, hey. You've always been kind of a homebody, though, haven't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. that's why they call me homie. Yeah, that's that's true, yeah. Well, to the younger audience out there, it's Mr. Homie, right? <laughs> As I went through school, I never really participated in sports much or anything like that because, again, I was always small, and I was always getting run over, <laughs> trampled, knocked down. So I kind of limited my physical activities at school, but after school, I played, you know, softball and tag football, that sort of thing, with sure. the locals in the neighborhood who had, where you had a little bit more respect for each other, that sort of thing. Not as competitive there. Not as competitive, yeah. and uh, people, you know, we looked out for one another in our neighborhood, that sort of thing. So growing up in Miami, did you do a lot of fishing? In Miami, the fishing that I did as a young person, I did with a neighbor because our neighbor, he liked to fish and uh, do that sort of outdoor sports. And yeah. he took my brother and I occasionally, pretty often, out fishing. And uh, so we, with cane poles and all this sort of thing, and we enjoyed that growing up. My dad didn't really take us fishing, mainly because my dad worked. My sure. dad worked hard. My dad was a, a small frame person like <laughs> myself, but my dad worked like two or three men in one. Now I know where you get it from. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm the spitting image, I guess, of my dad. And my dad was, uh, he was a worker. 
And he always provided well for the family. And I don't regret or take any offense because my dad always worked. And uh, he didn't take us to the ball game or take us to fish. My dad was a provider, and I appreciated that. Did you ever feel like you weren't loved, though, because of that? or was it, no, no, I never I yeah. never sensed that. And I was maybe five or six years old when my dad uh, came to know the Lord. And my dad, I guess, was the average Joe. You know, he uh, smoked a few cigarettes, <laughs> and he didn't really hang out with the guys because he was a worker. And uh, people came from the Baptist church, Emmanuel Baptist Church. We lived a block away from it. And they used to come to the house knocking on the door, doing their visitation pretty sure. often and next thing I knew here they're at the door again and the next thing you know my dad professed Christ and became a believer and uh, praise God for that yeah I could see a change in the house and in, in the structure of the house the way we did things in, in the house and my dad I guess I'm a lot like my dad because my dad when he gets on to something he goes all in <laughs> and you may be going in the wrong direction but you're all you're in But my dad wasn't a believer all that long, but I know right away my dad, he became a a person that went out on Monday night and visiting through the church with other people. The next thing you know, my dad went to seminary at night. Uh, My dad was ordained as a pastor back then, and uh, so again, my dad was all in, and my dad had his Bible with him wherever he went. He always had his Bible up on the dashboard of his truck, and my dad was always scribbling, underlining something in his Bible. So that was neat to know that my dad was that kind of person, and my dad had a heart for souls. Was he still in the military during all of this? No, this is this is long after the military. My dad's time in the military, and I remember. So my dad's uh, has been a musician most all of his life. Okay, he's always been able to play the piano or something. And not long again after my dad got saved and he's going through seminary, my dad's loading the piano up in the bed of the pickup truck. And going uh, to the prison stockade. No way. Going down to Miami on the beach, playing the piano out of the back end of the truck. <laughs> and he's he's got other people that are going there with him. And my, either my dad would preach or other people would preach. My dad would lead the music. And they would have a street side service in Miami. And this was probably in the mid-50s, okay. I guess you might say. Yeah. And so my dad surrounded himself with good people. Well, God surrounded my dad with good people. And uh, I remember my dad had built a duplex, and and we were living in one side, and another couple was living in the other side. Their their last name, they were the Blanchettes, was their last name. And Jerry got saved just like my dad, same period of time. Jerry went to seminary. The next thing you know, Jerry went to Brazil, took his whole family to Brazil as a missionary. And But meanwhile, all leading up to that, he was close ties with my dad. And he went with my dad down to Miami Beach and preaching, singing. Man. So it was pretty neat to know, <laughs> to see all that as I recall it now. Back then, it was just a busy life. But now I look at it, my dad was... My dad was on a mission. Absolutely. So. And, and, you know, the sacrifice that he made to do, yeah. to do those, I mean, that takes a lot of time and effort to do that. Yeah. And yeah. But, but what a legacy. Yeah. What an absolute legacy that he left and, you know, clearly raised his family in, in the Lord. And, you know, here you are, because I, I know that that was the influential part on that. But what what age were you when you got saved? When I got saved, I was nine, I don't really remember, sure, nine or ten years sure, old. somewhere and it, in there. And it was at Emmanuel Baptist okay. Church. And uh, I've been back to that church a couple of times in the last 20 years. It's still there. It's still there. It's changed its appearance a little uh, I'm bit. Sure uh, I'm sure it has. <laughs> but it was kind of neat to go back by there and know that uh, I have roots in that church, you know, that that's where I got saved, and it was neat to go back and visit. That is so cool. So have you been back to Miami? Well, it sounds like you have. I've, I've been back to Miami, and I know my way around real well. I um, mean, if anybody ever says an address to me, I know exactly what even that still. Even still, with it changing so much. Oh, yeah. Even when things have changed. I know where it is. That's crazy. So, and Miami's laid out a little bit different, I guess, than the average city. At least to me, it is. Everything is square. 
So if you say north, south, east, west, and you get, you say numbers, I, know, I can picture it in my mind exactly where it is, where some places you can't get there. you <laughs> got to go around about because of the ravine or the creek or the whatever. But Miami's pretty square. That's yeah. I, I've never been there. I yeah. honestly, I don't really have any desire to go there now. It's yeah. uh, I've heard it's changed so much since. Yeah. Well, I remember getting up in the morning. Let's say when there wasn't school on a weekend, or even during the summertime, we would get up and we weren't poor, but we were just average kids, my brother and I. But we would get up in the morning, and to be honest with you, we may have shoes on our feet, <laughs> or we may not. And I would like to think that we probably slipped shoes on our feet, but we would go right outside the house and go to the bus stop and get on the bus. <laughs> and for a dime, you could go round trip from our house to downtown Miami. And we would usually, uh, my brother and I would get up on a Saturday morning and ride the bus, go downtown, walk around, get a glass of iced tea for a nickel. <laughs> and we would collect uh, Coke bottles, pop bottles, and cash them in and get a little bit of change. So we might leave the house with only the dime to buy the ticket and go down and be gone all day, see all the sights of Miami, you know, as it's growing up, and do it on next to nothing and come home at the end of the day and my mom would say so what'd you do today oh we went downtown oh what'd you do well we just walked around and we saw this and we saw that and da 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 and my mom didn't think any more about it you know you be careful you watch out for this or watch out no that is crazy we there was nothing for us to watch out for in one sense i'm sure that evil was there but we were totally unaware of it. And my mom wasn't fearful of us doing that. <laughs> and this period of time, we are probably, I'm going to guess we're 8, 9, 10, 11. No. Yes, 12 years old. We weren't over 12 years old. Oh, my goodness. So. Mr. Woodall, that yeah. is. <laughs> that, yeah. So with that being said, would you let your kids do that now if no. you had kids? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a, we're we're just living in a different in a different age. And as I read my Bible and I read more and more and see the end times being more and more in my face, I'm aware of how everything's changing. Everything's changing, and uh, somewhat I don't believe we can stop that change. And I guess for me, my biggest struggle today is accepting change accepting the direction that this world is in, but knowing, again, I read the book often, and I've read the back of the book many times, <laughs> and I'm accepting it, but it, but it's a challenge for me to watch what I say, and the things when I see things that I know are wrong, and how much do I stand up for the truth and for what's right? Do I get very vocal about it? Because I don't want to step beyond my bounds and make people mad at me and never accept Christ or the gospel because sure. I stood up, but I want to speak up when it's time to speak up. And it's a challenge. So I admire people today who get out and do any kind of street ministry or anything like that. When I see these people sometimes on the corner in Ocala, and they're screaming yes, out sir. the gospel, this, that, and the other. I don't look down on them. And in the same token, I think that's a major challenge to get out there and it do is. something like yes, that. Sir. That's It is. Yes, sir. So Jeremiah, the guy who normally does this with me, him and I, we both do that. Probably not as often as we should. I don't think anyone can do it as often as they should. But it's very challenging. You really can't. Like, your focus just has to be on Christ and, you know, just knowing that his opinion of you matters and no one else's and because you're you're going to get cussed out people are going to get mad at you for no reason i mean just because you're telling them the truth and it's easy for us because we have a final authority <laughs> the bible said it it's true that's it there's no there's no discussing it the bible said it it's true but the world they're so convoluted i don't know if you want to speak on that at all just seeing what you've seen from you know the 40s and 50s to to now yeah well, I, you know, growing up in Miami, again, in that era of time where we would go downtown and get an iced tea and that sort of thing, I remember, you know, uh, history. I remember the racial divide back then, yes, and sir. I remember seeing the signs, you know, white only, black restroom facilities and black drinking fountains and all that sort of thing. And it kind of bothered me a, a little bit as a kid then 
I'll be honest with you, it bothered me a little bit, but not enough to really question why is it this way. But it kind of bothered me, what's the separation there? And especially when my mom, uh, during the summertime, I remember we had a Ford, uh, 56 Ford station wagon, I remember it, and my mom would load the station wagon up with food and little um, kids' Bibles and storybooks and all that. And what room was left over was uh, other families would ride along with us in that car. And we would go downtown and in what they call Alapata uh, area. And my mom would uh, do vacation Bible school right there in the square. And they would uh, do, you know, VBS. And it, it was pretty exciting. We were mingled right in the mix of those people. And I'm thinking, here we're doing this with all kinds of nationalities of people, color, skin color, all that sort of thing. But then when we would go to go get an iced tea and we would go downtown, black only, white only, and all that. So it was in my mind. Yeah, no kidding. But my family reached out to the other groups of people. And uh, in the same, that was on my mom's side, was heavily involved in VBS and working with with young people. And by dad, uh, here he was in construction work most all of his life. So my dad would leave the house and drive maybe four or five blocks away. And on the corner, in the dirt corner, (laughs) there would be several hundred people, laborers out there underneath a big tree wanting to get a job. And they would come running out and wave their hand and look for somebody. (laughs) And my dad generally had three or four people that he could pick from. Not that they were his, but they knew my dad and they knew my dad treated them well. But they knew when they got in the truck with my dad and they were headed to a job, they were going to get an ear, <laughs> an ear full of the gospel from my dad. Man, that I just I love hearing that legacy that uh, your dad stood up for the truth then and you know found Christ yeah. and and now you're carrying on that legacy and, and yeah. doing well, the same thing. Well, I have big shoes to fill and I've got little feet. <laughs> Big shoes to fill, and I can remember, you know, just kind of go several years past what we're talking about right now, and here I had my auto repair business, and my dad would help me to shuffle people, so if someone came in and they needed a ride back home, they were leaving their car with me for the day, my dad would come over and give that person a ride home, or take their car back to them and come back to the shop. I can't tell you how many people came up to me later and said, "Boy, your dad—he's a preacher, isn't he?" <laughs> or if your dad is going to help you, you're going to hear the gospel. Uh, absolutely. And, and that just impressed me all the more about how when my dad became a believer, that's the kind of person he was, and here he is now, 80 years old shuffling people for me and he's still preaching uh he's not ashamed of the gospel praise god that's That's, pretty neat oh that is super neat so okay so that was a little bit about your childhood i'm sure you have even more stories if if there's anything else that sticks out that you want to say about that before we move on no i guess as i'm growing up i didn't get too involved in sports that sort of thing but i was always working on something okay so i guess that's where I kind of took after my dad's side or liking there that I was either working on the lawnmower, taking the blade off of it and sharpening it. And we're talking, I'm talking about a young age now. Like eight, eight or nine, no. like you're saying, right? <laughs> well, I was probably 10 or 11 years sure. old for sure. And, uh, and sometimes I'd even have to get my brother to help me pull the rope on the lawnmower because I wasn't big enough to crank the lawnmower. <laughs> But my brother and I, we would uh, tear up the family lawnmower pretty often <laughs> because my brother would get it started and we would go cut yards. Okay, so you were trying to make money any way you could. Yeah. Trying to make a little money. And, and again, we weren't poor, but if we had anything, my mom and dad allowed us to work for it. I Absolutely. guess I'm thankful that they provided the mower. <laughs> when we whacked something and bent the lawnmower blade, my dad would get upset with us, but he got over it. Yeah. <laughs> and we put another blade on the mower, and uh, sometimes we tore the mower completely up. It broke the crankshaft in the mower. By oh, my goodness. What were you hitting? Well, we ran over a woman's well was coming up out of the ground, and, and the grass was growing up pretty high around it. We oh didn't see goodness. it. And uh, we hit the well and hit that galvanized pipe and... <laughs> It broke the crankshaft in the motor. and uh, But, you know, if we wanted to buy a Coke or a Moon Pie or whatever we wanted, 
We either went out and collected bottles. We never went to my mom. If we did, I don't remember. We never went and said, Mom, I want this. Mom, I want that. We knew how to provide for ourselves in one sense, those uh, pleasures. And as we got older, we cut grass, collected newspapers, collected bottles. My dad would unload his truck, and we would load it down with where we had collected hundreds and hundreds of pounds of newspaper, take it down to the recycling plant, cash it in, 40 cents, 100 pounds or something. I mean, it was like peanuts. No kidding. (laughs) But that's my dad allowed us to do that, and he struggled through it too with us. He wanted to see us learn and appreciate hard work and our reward so uh but as we did that next thing you know we wanted a bicycle and my brother and i found a frame of a bicycle in a trash pile and then we found a wheel over here and a wheel over there some handlebars and pieced together pieces and chain and that sort of thing <laughs> a frankenstein bike <laughs> yeah, yeah well I, re- I remember when we had this bike built and and we didn't have a chain yet and my brother and i used to push each other on the bicycle around in, in the yard and up and down the road <laughs> take turns pushing each other on the bike and we finally got a chain and again we weren't poor but that's just how we lived, and we we loved every minute of it. We couldn't wait to get up the next day and push each other again on that bicycle and live the life. So yes, I mean, because I mean, then you didn't have a smartphone. You didn't walk around with a smartphone in no. your face all the time. No. I mean, you you were out there living life every day. And I mean, what what do you have to say to the generation now that who walks around with their head in the screen? Ooh. I guess, again, remember I told you that I struggle with knowing when to talk and not when to sure. talk. This, that's one of those this moments. This is one of these that's times. That's one of those okay. moments. <laughs> because back in that day, not everybody had a house phone. Not even a house phone. Not everybody had one. Boy, that's hard to imagine. Yeah, hard to imagine. But somehow we survived. Uh, yeah. Well, since you don't want to talk on that, let me just ask you, if you could go back you know, and, and live in that time, but in like a modern age, would you? Oh, in a heartbeat. Okay. So I guess I'm jumping ahead here a little bit, but sure. I'll give you a little glimmer of it there that when we lived in Haiti, so many people, other missionaries and other people with some wealth and that that lived in Haiti, uh, business people and all that, they would often say to me, you're way too comfortable here, <laughs> way too comfortable here. And uh, they would maybe stop me and say, uh, put my phone number in your cell phone, you know, where, where you can call me later and let's get together about this or that, the other. And I said, I don't have my phone with me. <laughs> and they said, what? You're in Haiti and you're out on the road and you're going here, you're going there and you're on a bicycle and you don't have a cell phone with you? Are you crazy? You're way too comfortable here. I'm a people person, but I could live under a rock. Yeah. Oh, for But I'm sure. a people person. I want to come out from under the rock, but I'm not that person that looks for every new modern thing that seems to make life easier and simpler. I'm just content to be alive. So you would be totally okay like if you grew up in today's age, oh. like you want to do the technology stuff? I wouldn't do the technology stuff, but I'm struggling today. Yeah. <laughs> You know, someone born in in 48, I struggle today that people are so, they rely on their technology just to breathe. And I realize some people, it's their livelihood and some of it you have to have. It's probably too much. Yeah, most people today, it seems like, can't make common sense decisions and respond. They Hold on. They have, they're grabbing their phone and they're looking to see what the phone says. I don't care what the phone says. What do you say? (laughs) So anyway, I I struggle with that. Yeah. And with that said, I realized more and more why we weren't meant to be here forever. Sure. God has a plan, and I want to live out that plan, and I look to see what that plan is every day. (laughs) Amen to that. That's the only only focus, right? And just what God wants, or it should be at least. Yeah, it It should should be. be. And granted, we all get caught up in uh, the desires of this world and the things that uh, draw us. And right now, I'm into, uh, I fish, I guess you'd say quite a bit, but I fish when I can. Yeah. And I know I still have responsibilities as a dad and uh, taking care of things at home and taking care of my family. But it is so peaceful just to be out on the water in my little boat and I'm just kind of drifting along down the river, down the canal, in the lake, and I'm just taking it in. <laughs> and uh, 
you know, sometimes I catch a fish. A lot of times I don't catch a fish, <laughs> but I always tell people the fishing's okay, but the therapy is excellent. Oh, I love absolutely. the therapy. Being out in God's creation just does that. There's something oh, yeah. about just oh, seeing yeah. seeing His hand at work yeah. and just being able to enjoy it. I mean, that's why He made it. He made yeah. it for us to enjoy it. And so you said your responsibilities as a dad. I'm sure a lot of people are wondering what you mean by that, since you know you were born in the 40s. <laughs> yeah. I guess maybe by today's standards, I don't know, a little bit of a late start raising my family. And uh, I'm going to expose myself here as telling you that I don't really remember how old my kids are. <laughs> I don't remember the, exactly the year they were born. I remember the month and most of the time the day, but I don't remember all the years. But I have a daughter that's soon to be 40 years old, and she may be 40 already today, <laughs> but I can't, I can't remember. And her name is Sarah. And she lives in uh, Lutz or Lutz, Florida. Okay. And she's married, and I have uh, three uh, grandkids from Sarah. And uh, I have Ryan, my oldest uh, son. He's second one in the food chain there. <laughs> and uh, he lives across the road from me, and he's in his late 30s. He's 36, 7, 8, I think. He's, he's so, right somewhere in there. in there. Yeah, I yeah. can't remember his age. I do have... Uh, appreciate my kids and all that. I just can't keep up with numbers very well. But uh, Ryan is married to a good Christian wife, Darla, and uh, they don't have any children yet, but they're hoping to one day. And uh, <laughs> they got some great dogs, though. Oh yeah, got, got good dogs, good dogs. <laughs> then we have uh, Reagan, uh, Andrew's boss, yes. and uh, I mean, I think the world of Reagan, and he's. I really have enjoyed watching him find himself and find uh, what God has in store for him absolutely, and God's yeah. plan for his life. And uh, Reagan is no different than any of us. <laughs> Reagan has uh, chosen paths. He's chosen paths just like I have and all of us have that, wow, what in the world was I thinking <laughs> when I did this or when I did that? Or I thought this, or I thought that. Everyone can relate to that right now. Everybody <laughs> can relate to that. And if you uh, have a couple of months' uh, time, come hang out with me, and I'll tell you about my <laughs> my adventures down the road that I thought was the right path. But God has a plan, and it's neat to know that if you get up in the morning and you seek God, God's going to be—he may be whispering at first, and if you start listening for that whisper and and you don't hear it and you're uh, still maybe headed maybe in the wrong, God will start shouting. God will, God will get your attention if you seek him. If you don't seek him, you're really in a dangerous and a tough situation because you're traveling under your own strength and your own uh, knowledge. So it's best to seek God. And uh, it's neat to see Reagan is doing that. And it's what I desire for all my kids, my daughter and my three sons, because I have an adopted son. And uh, David is 18 years old, and he has lived with us since birth. So David is someone that I was there the day after he was born. Within 24 hours of his birth, I was there. And that was in Haiti, correct? That was in Haiti, and uh, which is going to be another story down the road, yeah, I'm sure. absolutely. But David is somebody that, here he is, a newborn, and he was a difficult situation because mm. he was totally helpless. And I told Sandy, I said, I'm going to do everything I can to see that he gets of age to where he can fend for himself. Oh, and then God. when he gets where he can fend for himself, he's going to have to make his own make decisions just like we all do. Absolutely. I said, but at this point, being a day old, how do you walk away from a day old oh my goodness. when there's no love and no care at all? Well, I mean, uh, now we're seeing more and more where before they're even a day old, they're, right. they're getting rid of them because right. they're too much of a burden and, oh. So we've been raising David since birth, and it's been a learning experience for us in one sense because here we've already raised three, and now we've taken on a newborn, <laughs> and we're going starting all over. But we have experience. You know, we've raised three, but we've also learned that what we think we know <laughs> isn't all we need to know. Oh, amen. So we're walking, uh, trying to raise David in God's eyes to do the right thing, and it's a challenge today sure. because that thing I was telling you about 1948, growing up as a kid, how carefree it was. Yes, sir. There's lots of cares today. It's changed a lot. Those things that I didn't deal with 
I was totally unaware of then. David is, he's amongst the enemy today, and it's around all of us. And uh, so we're trying to raise him to where he has the knowledge, the awareness of uh, the warfare that's going on and how to arm himself, how to protect himself. It's a challenge. Yes, sir. Yeah. The input from all around, uh, you just can't, you know, even if you didn't have a phone, you see it everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> you see it absolutely everywhere. You know, there's TVs everywhere. There's everything everywhere. And that's just. Yeah, I because I, I can remember, you know, here I told you about paying the dime and uh, getting on the bus and riding downtown <laughs> to get the iced tea and all that. I remember there were a few kids who seemed like us, but they had scooters. Cushman scooters back then. <laughs> Not many, but just a few did. And we thought, wow, if I could only have me a scooter and then I could have a paper route and sell newspapers to, with my scooter, this, and that, and the other. And meanwhile, my brother and I are on a bicycle with no chain pushing each, <laughs> pushing other, each around. other around. But we were, I guess in today's day and age, it would be like uh, living without a car, a young person, driving age, but no car, being 16, 17, 18 years old, and other people having a car and a cell phone and a laptop computer, all that stuff, and me being just an average teenage kid and not having those things, you would stand out. Yeah, you really would. You would stand out because you're not in the loop, and sometimes that loop isn't all it's cracked up to be. Yeah, it's very true. (laughs) Very, very true. Well, if you're ready, I say we get into your teenage years here. And <laughs> so, I guess I could say I'm ready for my teenage years because <laughs> I've been there, done that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm very curious as to what kind of trouble you got into as a teenager. That's... I really didn't get, well, I never got caught that much. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I, I really didn't get into much trouble. I don't feel like I was a problem for my mom and dad growing up. Uh, that doesn't mean that I was uh, innocent. I, I can honestly say I probably just didn't get caught. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I knew how to uh, work the system. <laughs> what, what do you mean by work the system? You know, so you knew when you could uh, tell a little fib or a lie here or there and get away with it. Like specifically to your parents or like people out? Wherever, it was, wherever, ne- wherever it was. Whatever was necessary. <laughs> You know, but I but I really wasn't a very mischievous person. At least I don't feel like I was, but that doesn't mean I was innocent by any means. And again, I, I told you about how I was the kid that was always wanting to work on the lawnmower and working on bicycles and all that sort of thing. So when other people were, let's say, in those early teenage years and they were sneaking off with some other guys and they went and bought a six-pack of beer or whatever that sort of thing, I never had any desire. I didn't have any problem with that at all. And I didn't condemn those people, but I didn't have any issue with that whatsoever. Were you like ever peer pressured into that? And you, but no. it just wasn't a thing that was, you it, just didn't it, appeal it, to you at all. You could hang any of that in front of me. It didn't excite me at all. Now, if you came over to the house, and here I'm early, about ready to drive, but I was already working on motorcycles and that sort of thing. Knew how to ride one, but I didn't have one of my own yet, and that sort of thing. Now, if you came over with a motorcycle and I could <laughs> fix the exhaust on it or whatever little thing needed to be done, I could get on it and rip down the road a little bit. That excited That me. was exciting, dude. That, that, that was the thing. So I was a mechanical person, and the mechanical part, part probably kept me from being attracted. I wasn't attracted to that other, other stuff. I remember my mom and dad helped. Again, I have a year older brother. He played football, baseball. He was more sports-minded. He was almost twice my size. And uh, so he got into that sports growing up as a normal kid. Where me, I was definitely abnormal. I was small in statue, but I liked mechanical things and building. And I helped my dad a fair amount. Because my dad had his regular job, then he was always doing side jobs. Whatever he could find, yeah. So my dad would uh, take my brother and I with him to work on Saturday mornings, and we would mix cement (laughs) and help do plumbing, electrical, all that kind of stuff. And not to put my brother down by any means at all, but I was the one that wanted to know and was more willing to help my dad. Not that I always wanted to, but I was more willing to help my dad than my brother. And uh, my brother just came to visit me here (laughs) a few weeks ago, and my brother, totally out of the blue, brought this up. 
he said, you know, I just had a revelation. And I said, what's that? <laughs> and he reminded me of how we were growing up, how I was that person I'm talking about. The mechanical-minded one. And my brother, he just, he wasn't there. He was there, but he wasn't. Was it that he just didn't have an interest in it, or just that his mind didn't work he, that way? Yeah, he just had a typical young person's mind. He'd rather be playing baseball or that sure. sort of thing. And yeah. he was normal, where I always had that desire to achieve. And he said, you always wanted to go cut grass or this, that, and the other, and put a little jingle in your pocket and it says <laughs> it never did. And he sees that same thing in other people today. And so I won't go into that, you know, as we speak, but within our family, he sees that today. And it really struck me that my brother brought that up and that he's had this revelation. And I'm not saying that makes me the good guy, him the bad guy, any of that, no, but no, it no. makes me more aware of how we live our lives and how, how we conduct ourselves, that somebody's watching, and you're mm. going to have an effect on people around you, either a positive or a negative effect. Whether you realize it or not. Whether you realize it or not. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Now, that's the dangerous thing is all the choices that we make makes us, right? That's who we are is what yeah. we do. So. so, again, I'll go back to growing up, and uh, my brother and I wanted a car, and my mom and dad, I remember we went to a little car lot down in Miami near the airport, and my dad bought an English Ford station wagon. Okay. A little stubby nub of a car, little four-cylinder, and um, I think my, I don't really remember for sure, I think my dad paid three, four, five hundred dollars for the car. <laughs> And we paid, my brother and I saved our money, and I know we paid my mom and dad back $300 for okay. the car. And uh, that was my brother and mine's car, and uh, we drove that car as soon as we both got our license about the same time. And uh, we drove that car to school, and uh, we thought, I mean, that was our hot rod. <laughs> it was a big deal. It was, <laughs> it was a big, a big deal. deal, absolutely. It was so funny because uh, I would, I, I had a neighbor who was, actually, he was older than we were, and he worked on cars, and he had, you know, loud exhaust and a V8 motor in his car and yeah. wide tires and all that sort of thing. And here my brother and I have this little... It was a 1957 English Ford station wagon, four-cylinder, flathead, four-speed. It wasn't synchronized in first gear. So you, if you took off and got going in second gear and then you were slowed down real slow, you had to come to a complete stop before you could put it back in first gear to get going again. Oh so in, by today's standards, it's Neanderthal. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's ancient. But that was our that was our car, and I remember that again. I'm the fabricator. What I could weld at a young age, all okay. this sort of thing. So I remember taking uh, wheels from a different car, cutting the center out, and welding the English Ford uh, bolt pattern from another wheel inside this <laughs> wider wheel. So we had fat fat wheels and tires on the back of our English Ford station wagon. That was our hot ride. That's awesome. Yeah. That's, did you guys ever fight over the car? Not really, at least that I recall. Okay. We maybe, you know, a little bit, but car-wise, I don't think no more than normal. And we had several discussions, you know, about uh, what color we were maybe going to paint it, <laughs> yeah. you know, and fixing up the inside of it and putting a radio, oh, not man. stereo, a radio <laughs> In the car and that sort of thing. So they didn't even have a radio no. in it. That didn't come standard at no. the time. No, <laughs> that's oh, crazy. Wow. But anyway, that that was that was pretty neat. And that car gave us mobility. And by getting that car, that allowed us to we hauled our own newspapers to the recycling place. <laughs> what little bit we were still doing that. I'm sure your dad was happy with that, yeah, not having to yeah. take you guys all the time. Yeah, that took a little bit of load off of off of dad. <laughs> and and same, it probably made my mom and dad start to wonder. Now, you know, it's uh, it's six o'clock and they were supposed to be home and uh, they're not home yet. Did they have a wreck? Because we didn't have cell phones, right? Back yeah. then, and not everybody had a house phone. Even did you, did your parents have a house phone? We we did have a house phone. So would you carry change to? try and find like a payphone or well uh no to be honest with you it isn't like we communications was that big of a thing <laughs> okay like today i understand that people are constantly texting or calling one another 
with every little whim, every little thing. And back then, we wouldn't look for a pay phone or go by somebody's house that had a phone to call home unless it was absolutely necessary. You know, something was uh, trying to meet a deadline or we knew they might be worried, that sort of thing. You mostly just figured it out, yeah, right? You yeah, just, you know, fly by the seat of your pants, you know, and sometimes it, <laughs> your pants got a little warm. But <laughs> <laughs> Oh my goodness! Did did you ever take the vehicle uh, on the beach? No, we ne- we never uh, in Miami. You couldn't drive on the beach. Okay. Now you could in Fort Lauderdale. <laughs> yeah, but this car we never took it out of the county. Okay, <laughs> it, we stayed within somewhat of a radius of the Miami general Miami area. Was that in case you needed to walk home, or just didn't have a need to well, leave? You know, back in that day, if you were to get in the car. And go to Fort Lauderdale, that would be like, whoa, that would be a long ways. And yet, though, there it wasn't as built up at all back then as it is today. But it just seemed like being a long haul if okay. you went that far. We really had no reason to drive that far away. Were so. the roads not as smooth as they are now? Was that uh, a factor? I would factor? say the roads, the roads were, were decent in that day. Okay. There just weren't that many roads. Okay. So, um, <laughs> Definitely makes it more challenging. Yeah, because we're talking about long before I-95, long before the turnpike, all that stuff. So if you actually wanted to get out of town, uh, there was Highway 27 or, or and 301 and that's, or 441, that sort of thing. But uh, the rest of it was all just two-lane little side roads but we were content to have our car and and, uh, drive our little english ford station wagon i remember i put a cherry bomb muffler on the car and i ran the (laughs) exhaust out the side of the car oh man and uh we didn't really know nascar in that day back then but i had the pipe coming out the side just like dale earnhardt had on his car you know and i had a manual choke on the car so I remember, you know, you wanted that sound. Your, oh, your buddy, yeah. I still want that sound. <laughs> your buddy down the road, he's got his V8 with his loud exhaust dual pipes, but I had my single pipe coming out the side, and it was about four inches in diameter. I put a big old pipe out the side, but I had a manual choke. So I would hold the throttle just right and pull the choke on just enough. So I'm sitting at the traffic light and it's bumping and knocking and uh, blowing black smoke out the pipe. Oh and then goodness. right about the time the light would change, I would push the choke in and clear it out and leave from the light, you know, like I was driving a hot rod Ford. Oh my goodness. Four cylinder flathead. So um, And that was the station wagon. That was just station to be clear. Wagon, yeah. Yeah. Wow, that's... That, but that's uh, so we always my brother and I both we did like cars and my brother was a mechanical person also with the okay. car thing. As he saw the need to wanted to be able to drive and be mobile, he helped work on the car and we <laughs> provide both provided for the car, that sort of thing. I remember um, we had been uh, around Miami International Airport and we were sitting at a traffic light and a big Cadillac came to a screeching halt into the back end of our Ford station wagon. Oh my goodness. And and, kind of wadded up the back end of our car. And the funniest thing that happened, I still remember to this day, is as he slammed us in the rear end, we didn't get hurt, but the gauges, the speedometer... (laughs) And the gauges in the dashboard of the car popped out like eyeballs. <laughs> when he booted us in the rear end, the gauges plopped out and uh, we're hanging there by the wires and that sort of thing. We laughed and then we realized, whoa, we just had a wreck. This is our car. <laughs> but that kind of took the life out of the Ford. Uh, oh, man. The, the uh, English Ford. And um, Wait, so that would have been an all-steel frame too, right? Well, it didn't really have a frame because oh, okay. this little car was kind of a unibody kind of thing. So it kind of wasted the car whenever it got rear-ended. Oh, okay. And um, it was, uh, at that point, it was basically a, a throwaway and it was done. It was... <laughs> It is finished. <laughs> no no airbags either, right? <laughs> no, no deployment. So from then on, I really started uh, hunkering down and saving my money. And mom was taking us to and from school, saving my money, wanting a car. And uh, I found a 1957 Chevrolet Bel Air at a car oh, lot man. in Hialeah. And um, my mom took me back over there. And uh, best I remember, my mom didn't negotiate with the guy. She helped me a little bit talking with the guy because I'm just 16 or 17 years old. 
if I'm not mistaken, I'm still only 16 years old, but I talked with the man and I bought that car. If I remember correctly, I paid $700 for that car and it had 64,000 miles on it. And I paid $700 for it. Which back then, too, that was like a lot of miles, right? Oh, yeah, that was a lot of money. And to me, I looked at it, wow, it's almost worn out. It's got 64000 Right. For today, if you had a car with 64000 You got a lot of life left in oh, that yeah. car, yeah. yeah. That's... But I remember buying that car, bringing it home, and I was so proud of that car. I mean, I kept it washed, vacuumed out, and it was my car. <clears throat> It wasn't my brother. It was my car. Absolutely. It's all and, yours uh, now. My brother, uh, he if he wanted a car, he was going to have to fend for himself. Because, <laughs> and, he, and he did. He eventually got him a 55 uh, Chevrolet. But I remember that 57. I, I hung on to it for the longest time and tinted the windows in it myself. So was that a thing back then that people were tinting the windows? If you wanted the look. If you wanted the look, if yeah. If you wanted that look and you wanted to be cool, I remember it was... Uh, ivory top with a bronze so it was a two-tone car and i tinted the windows with a like a golden sun tint like windows yeah and it was spray on oh my goodness and uh, (laughs) i didn't do too bad but um i mean it 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 was a little bit uh, droopy runny in a few places but i remember spraying it on there and protecting the interior and all this sort of thing when i'm putting that in there but when I got done, man, it was cool. Yeah. Oh, yeah, my yeah. 57 Chevrolet. And I remember uh, looking. This is long before radial tires and all that. So I looked for me the widest street tires I could put on it back then. Because I wanted, sure. again, wanted that look. And uh, so, you know, that was my treasure in that day, that my, my car and taking care of my car. And if anybody got in my car, they didn't slam the door. <laughs> they didn't do anything. That's my car, you know. And so I was pretty proud of that. And uh, you... Yeah, I don't blame you. That's that's pretty cool. That's yeah. a really cool car. Man, to have that car now would be really cool. Well, yeah, you know, it's kind of funny that here at my age, sometimes I just have a little dreams of, wow, I still have that car in the backyard somewhere. It's, it's, <laughs> no. It's kind of, Unfortunately not. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, man. You know, so so anyway, I've again, back to the lawnmower, replacing the blade, working with the carburetor, the motorcycles, the cars, and... Cars were, I followed uh, racing a little bit as far as started buying a few hot rod magazines. And there was a drag strip uh, just north of the house, maybe five or six miles north of the house. Okay. And that drag strip happened to be on the same property that I was born on in Opalaka. Yeah. It was called Master's Field. Okay. So we remember my brother and I, um, actually before we got our first car, we would ride our bicycles up to Masters Field and watch Don Garlitz's yeah, drag okay. race at uh, Masters Field and there in Opalaka. Oh my goodness, that's crazy. I didn't realize that they had been around that long, yeah. Don Garlitz. So he that's... was a young man when he was doing that then, and he was pretty famous as a young person doing that. So again, let's go back in that era of time. We didn't have a car with a radio, and we didn't really have a radio at home that we just turned on and get the local news and what's happening in Miami today. And, oh, yeah, the fair is coming to town or the carnival or the horse show. or what. We didn't have that kind of noise in our ear. <laughs> and no TV in the house, right? We had a TV, oh, but did? it okay. wasn't really on TV. Yeah, okay. So what we would hear, though, was we'd be out in the yard or work on our bicycles or playing baseball, whatever, in the yard lot, and we would hear the dragsters going to Masters Field, especially if the wind was blowing our way. You could hear them easily from several miles away. That's and we crazy. And said, oh, man, the drags are in town. Oh, and that's how goodness. we found out, jumped on our bicycles, and we would drive up there. We wouldn't pay to go in. We would hang on the fence. Yeah. Every now and then, we would jump the fence <laughs> and walk in. So that was a big deal for us to jump the fence and knowing that we had snuck in the races. And, oh, man, what if we get caught? Will they lock us up will they this just will they call our mom and dad and all this sort of thing but anyway we uh we like mechanical things and we like the racing and we would go up there and watch the drag races and yeah so you've been a gearhead since you were really young yeah so all that kind of stuff fueled the fire to make 
me, I guess, what I am today as far as a mechanical-minded person and liking speed and um, that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, because you still keep up with the racing now, right? Keep up with the racing a fair amount. I see, again, as the world changes, racing has changed and... Unfortunately, all the regulations that yeah, they're and pushing all, all out. That and, stuff and, uh, and how money plays into it and uh, with the advertising and then NASCAR or drag racing, whatever, starts catering to the people with the money and all that sort of thing. But it's hard to, when you get those fumes in you, <laughs> it's still pretty neat. Uh, I was just telling a neighbor the other day, he was walking around the block with, uh, he's much younger than I am, but uh, he's probably about your age, Andrew, but he's walking around the block with his mom and his grandmother. And I asked him when he was going to go back to racing his go-kart. And he <laughs> says, any day, but I got to get my financial responsibilities squared away that I'm going back at it because he loves to race oh, he's, man. and he's a competitor. And I told him, I said, I'll have to be honest with you. I said, I, I quit racing my bicycle riding my bike so much and i'm fishing quite a bit i could get back in a go-kart and hurt me and chase that (laughs) stuff i said but i don't need to do it because it's too time consuming and i've i have enough responsibilities and a sense of what's going on right now but to compete to get out there not to i'd like to win but (laughs) if i go to do it i'm I'm gonna be all in (laughs) you're gonna be all in again yeah and you know everything has that's what i told this young man i said everything has a season and uh, that season's passed, so. Unfortunately, yeah. yeah, well, that's how that works. Well, anyways, Mr. Woodall, I really appreciate you being here and talking to me today. Um, we're going we're gonna to do this again, I, at least I hope. W- Lord willing, and the church don't rise, right? <laughs> but I don't want to keep you all day today talking, so we're going to, if you're okay with it, we'll end it here, and we'll pick it up uh, probably in your high school years, you know, next week or next couple weeks or whenever we do it. Yeah, that'll be fine. Uh, you know, I, I don't know where in the world I came up with what I've told you because you made me go back to my birth. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> and wow, that's scary. And so this will give me a little opportunity to think about high school. Sure. And, uh, yeah, I finished high school. Yeah, I believe I did. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I've, got, I've, got the, uh, I've got the permit. I got the ticket. Yeah. So, uh, but I thank you for the opportunity to uh, come. And if you even asked me to do this, I'm reminded that we all have a story. Yes, sir. And you're drawing my story out of me. So thank you. I I have a firm belief that we're all students of each other and we're all here to learn from each other um, in in some way or some some fashion. And and just knowing that you've lived a lot of life and Mm -hmm. and you have that wisdom. And so I'm just honored to, to be able to sit here and grow our friendship and give you the opportunity to uh to talk and share your stories well i know that iron sharpens iron yes sir but, but be careful don't hurt me, don't hurt me. <laughs> all right we'll do this again we'll talk later thank you